Buckley is our family dog. He's a little light brown Maltese poodle mix. He's all of about eight pounds full grown. And like hundreds of thousands of other dogs, Buckley came into our home during the pandemic. In a moment of weakness, my wife conceded. She gave up her long-held position that if we were to be a pet family, we would exclusively be a cat family. Well, a few months into our shared isolation, and all six of us being cooped up together, we held a little family meeting. The meeting was actually called by our older kids. Together, they laid out a, a pretty compelling case that it would be a good time for us to get a dog. And after their little presentation, to my utter amazement, Julie caved. She agreed with them that the distraction of a dog might actually gain us all a little bit of sanity. So Buckley made his way in. And while Julie still isn't a dog person, she is a Buckley girl. Just last week, our little Buck started acting a bit sluggish, and he began to protect his hind leg like maybe he'd been injured. A day later, we woke up and he was in a full limp. We wondered if he'd gotten stepped on by accident or took an awkward fall and maybe broken a leg or something. So I brought him to the vet the next morning and they looked at him and said, nothing is broken. There seems to be no injury, but there is some swelling in his joints. I think we should do a round of tests for Lyme disease. Ah, then it all came back to me. Sure enough, back uh, in May, I remember pulling a, a tick that had embedded in his fur and that had deeply embedded beneath his skin. And apparently the bacteria that was transmitted into his system by that tick had been doing its work inside his little body. It was dormant for months, but finally the infection flared up and began to attack his joints. And we could see it, it, it all over him in the way he walked. You see, here's the point, and it's the point of the message today. What's on the inside will always work its way out. What's on the inside will always work its way out. Now, I'm glad to report that the antibiotic has had good effect and Buckley's back to his old self this week. Now, what's true for pooches is true for human beings as well. I wonder how many of you were intrigued when the Mega Millions jackpot ballooned to over $1.3 billion. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands for who bought a ticket. I wouldn't be able to see you anyway. But my mind got to dreaming a bit. What would I do with $1.3 billion? Of course, it was only $433 million after taxes, but who's counting? But in my dreaming, I began to wrestle with what access to all that money might reveal about my true self. What would the spending of that money say about me? What was exciting me about the thought of it? What would, what would my life be like if I actually had the financial resource to fund my deepest desires? Would I still be the same me that I am now? Would I invest in, the, in kingdom things? Would I stay connected to the church? Would I continue to live out my calling as a pastor? Would I show up tomorrow to work or would I get a ranch out in Montana and live out my days watching the sunset over the mountains? All of this got me curious about how multi-million dollar winners fared in life. Did the money ruin them? Did it change them? What typically happened? So a little online research brought me to the answers. 
It turns out lots of money doesn't necessarily change people as much as it, it reveals what's already inside of people. Not only the jackpot winners, but the people around them, their family, their friends, and suddenly all kinds of friends that they never knew they had before. For some, what, when what's inside comes out, it ruins them. For others, it actually leads to good things. And for all of us, whether we're mega millionaire winners or just average people making our way through life, what's on the inside will always work its way out. It's the message of James for us today. And I've decided to give you the big idea right up front so that as we go, you can consider the simple question, what is on the inside of me? And that other corollary question, what is it that I see working its way out? Now, last week, Pastor Brian spoke on a passage that he said was one of the most perplexing and difficult passages in all the Bible to translate and interpret. Well, if you thought last week's passage was a tough one, this week I'm dealing with a passage that has been so challenging, uh, so controversial, so divisive that throughout hundreds of years of church history, this very passage has caused many theologians to question the legitimacy of James as a part of the biblical canon. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther, not King Jr. from the Civil Rights Movement, but the original ML, the one who in 1517 sparked the Protestant Reformation by nailing a list of 95 grievances to the Wittenberg door, Martin Luther was one of those who questioned the value of this letter for the church. At one point, he called the letter an epistle of straw, like it was lightweight compared to the other real letters. Another time he said, the epistle of James gives us much trouble. I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the stove. Uh, Martin Luther was ready to throw the book of James out of the Bible. And his main reason for that was the text we're going to look at today. Intrigued? Well, let's take a closer look. And by the time we're done, I think you'll be glad that we have the book of James. Let's hear the passage, chapter 2, verse 14 and following. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. And then James continues with his winsome tone in verse 20. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did 
when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Well, once again, we find James as a writer, like pulling no punches. Brother James always comes loaded for bear. The side of me that's interested in social psychology always wonders how much of James' personality developed as an overcompensation for being the little brother of Jesus, like God incarnate. That could do a thing internally to a guy. But regardless of human motivation or psyche, we know that his words are also spirit-inspired. And the point James is making is clear. He's saying, if someone is saying there's something on the inside, but it's not actually working its way to the outside, then maybe the thing isn't really on the inside at all. If someone claims to have faith, faith being that internal, conscious embrace of a truth, and in this case, the truth that Jesus is Messiah. He's the one who lived and died, rose again to forgive us and offer us a new start, a new way of living based on his love and not our selfishness. If someone claims to have that faith, but has no deeds, deeds being the external, the outward demonstration, the show that always tells the truth about what's happening on the inward part of our lives. That if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds, is it really saving faith? Faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, he says, is dead. What James is really saying is, what is on the inside will always work its way out. Now, it was this passage, this verse in particular, that pushed all of Luther's buttons. Martin Luther lived during the time when the the church was teaching that what led to a person's salvation or right standing before God was faith in Jesus, accompanied by works. But they were saying that these works weren't simply an outflow of their faith. They were considered part of what would actually help tip the balance and earn merit or favor in the eyes of God. And the way it was being expressed, if you didn't do certain things, you might not make it into the kingdom, into heaven. And so religious life was structured around doing these things. And many of them were good things. Penance and confession and giving alms to the poor. But others were a little more suspect. The purchase of indulgences, literally paying some money to the church to shorten a loved one's time in purgatory and get them to heaven faster. So people found themselves caught on this treadmill of good works that coincidentally helped the church amass great wealth and power and influence. So Luther, in his autobiography, Confessions, he talks about how it was to live in that system as a young clergyman. He just always felt the heavy weight from how much he wasn't measuring up. His constant and thorough and persistent examination of his inner thoughts and more pointedly his outer life drove him to feelings of guilt and despair and fear for his own eternal destiny. He was feeling crushed under the weight of it. Luther's great realization, it came when he picked up the Bible and discovered Romans and came to the verse in Romans 1.17. For himself, for in the gospel, 
the righteousness of God is revealed. And it's a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So the idea of salvation through faith in Jesus' work, not his own effort, this seminal idea became the liberating principle that gave him such relief and such joy that the righteousness of Jesus is what we put our trust in. His works, that's what earns our salvation, not our own. That became freedom for him. And it sparked the Reformation as well. Sola fide, faith alone as the means of salvation became his rallying cry. And when Luther came to James's passage that said, faith without works is dead, it triggered him. Luther, I'm sure, heard the echoes of the merit-based system of salvation that had so beaten him down. But what he didn't see was that James really wasn't arguing that deeds save us. He's simply saying, that what's on the inside will always work its way out. If you, if you want to know what you believe, then, then you'll see it in the way that you live. And James is writing to a group of believers who had a pretty clear sense of certainty about their spot in the kingdom. They weren't worried about their standing before God. They were certain they believed all the things necessary to get on the good side of God's graces. Checked every box. What James is saying is if you really want to know if you believe, then take a look at what you actually do. Not that deeds save you, but they certainly reveal what's truly on the inside. So saving faith is never about believing the right things so that you can get into heaven. Saving faith is about placing our lives and our confidence in Jesus and then allowing the qualities of his nature to infect us to restructure us, to flow out of us as trust in God and love towards others. What's on the inside will always work its way out. And the hypocrisy of this group ran so deep that they even overlooked the simplest of expressions of love and compassion. So much so that the response to the material need of the people around them in poverty was nothing more than thoughts and prayers. As a matter of fact, they said, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed. What they really needed was, was food and a blanket. It's one of the things I love about our partners down in Guatemala City, the Potter's House. Uh, that ministry began when a woman wanted to express Christmas joy to the community of people living in and around the massive city dump. She came to express the hope of Jesus, but when she got there and saw the conditions of the community that gleaned from the dump there, made their living off of it, and when she saw their incredible material need, she decided that what, wasn't, what was needed wasn't just a Christmas celebration of good cheer. What they needed was blankets and clothing and tarps to keep them dry. And so she did that, got her friends to bring those things forward. And what began with a simple display of compassion has, has become a comprehensive systems approach to raising the dignity and value of that en entire community in the name of and out of love for Jesus. Faith expressing itself through deeds. 
Saving faith isn't about believing the right things so that you can get into heaven. Saving faith is about placing our confidence in Jesus and allowing his qualities to flow out of us. Well, it's time to get a little personal for a minute. Let's talk about you. Let's think back again for a moment to that $1.8 billion jackpot. What would $1.8 billion reveal about the nature of your faith? More to the point, what did last Tuesday reveal about the nature of your faith? If someone were paying attention to your life the way we started paying attention to Buckley's behaviors, what would your external symptoms reveal about what was really happening on the inside of you? I love the simplicity of James' example of the person in need of food and clothing. James is saying, in the simple moments of life, our faith should show. This coming Wednesday at 1.30 p.m., wherever you are, will your life be showing a true faith? You know, the, the very thing that turns people off to Christians, Christianity and the church, is that disconnect between what we say we believe and what we actually do. Our, our striving to be holy, but our lack of real-life compassion. We say we have confidence and faith in Jesus, but Jesus isn't showing himself through us. Now, I know you're saying hypocrisy is not just a symptom of Christian belief. It's a symptom of the human condition, and that is absolutely true. As a matter of fact, we live in a day when everyone posts their convictions about almost everything in life on their social media fades, tweets, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. And I believe part of this is driven by a desire for a person to be viewed as right or good or on the good side. But posting or writing or saying, it's not enough for any of us. A person who says they're committed to social justice but has never given up something of themselves for the sake of another person who's lacked opportunity in their workplace or doesn't build relationships cross-culturally to listen and learn might not really be committed to social justice. Or a person who posts pro-life messaging who has never come alongside of a woman during crisis pregnancy or opened their home to a child placed in foster care or come alongside others who are doing the same. If they say it, but don't do these things, maybe they're not really committed to what they say they're committed to. And a person who says they're, they follow Jesus, but, but throws up divisive and hateful Facebook rants, you fill in the blank. Fact is, no matter what we actually say about anything, the truth is always revealed in the living out of it. We live exactly what we believe. A few months back, I was in Panera's. I was meeting with a woman talking about her faith and the intersection of her faith and her calling and a new big job, job transition. And as we were making our way to the table for that very conversation, there was an elderly man at another table who was just beginning to stand up to leave. And he had a bag and he had his cane and he was sort of struggling to juggle his own stability with all the trash and trays he needed to collect and toss into the can. My friend went up to him and said, sir, can I help you with that? And he said, oh, please. And she came alongside of him and helped get him sorted out. And we sat down and she looked at me and said, she said, that's what it's really about, isn't it? 
It just drives me nuts how often Christians get together and talk about faith stuff, but miss out on the simple things like just helping someone right in front of them. And I sat there like the listener to James, checked in my own spirit by my friend because my eyes didn't meet the need of that man and I didn't see it. Fact is, what we believe does make its way out. Well, James offers two more examples of what true faith looks like, two very different people. The first is Abraham, the father of Israel, the man who had it all, like wealth and privilege and property, standing in society. Abraham had everything. He was the inheritor of his family's great legacy and his destiny was already written for him. The second person was Rahab, the prostitute, the one who took in the spies of Israel and kept them safe as they were gathering intel to see what they were up against. She was a young woman who had nothing, who likely was driven into her profession out of a need to survive and, and help provide for her family. She would likely have been living in the shadows, shunned by society, part of an unjust and uncaring system. And both of them showed their faith by what they did. Because for each of them, faith wasn't a mental assent to the fact that there was a God at work in this world. For each of them, faith was a deep in their bones trust in God, to, who, who they believed would do in and through them the things that he said he would. Abraham demonstrated that trust by literally risking everything he had to go when God said go. Entrusting to him his greatest legacy, his only son, who was the fulfillment of the promise of God. Even believing that God would raise him from the dead if it came to that. And then Rahab demonstrated that trust in God by aligning herself with a God she believed would offer her rescue and freedom. And then when she got free, she, out of compassion, reached back to her family. The ones who have may, may have even been complicit in her circumstance. The scripture says she became great in the eyes of God's people. She's mentioned as one of the few women in the lineage of Jesus in the book of Matthew. <laughs> I'm sure it must have tweaked James's listeners to hear him speak so glowingly about Rahab the prostitute and so disparagingly about their lack of faith but it was the message they needed to hear. Maybe it's the message you need to hear today. So what's the takeaway? Where does it leave us? Where, where does James' gentle, maybe not so gentle rebuke lead you today? Maybe it's made you curious about how connected what you do is to what you say you believe. That curiosity is a good thing. Maybe it's leading you to wonder about how loving you actually are, about whether or not the qualities of Jesus are honestly flowing through your life. Maybe it's leading you to wonder how much of your life visibly demonstrates the trust in God that you say you have. And for many of us, it may lead us to want to grow more, both inside and outside, in the depth of our faith and in the beauty of our deeds. You know, the wonderful thing is that it is possible. The cool thing is that we can grow by addressing either side of that equation, either the internal or the external. Luther and James were both right. Faith in Christ's goodness is the only thing that leads us to God. And true faith leads us to a life of trust and compassion. 
What science is teaching us about the elasticity of our brain suggests that we actually can grow in new patterns. New channels can be charted in our thinking and in our behavior. At the same time, we're discovering that there is this deep connection between our thought life and our actions. The mind-body connection is real. So James is right. What's inside really does work its way out. So this week, maybe you want to address the inside. Maybe you want to strengthen and shape the faith side of that equation. You can do that. One common practice that has been used by followers of Jesus for millennia is the practice of solitude. It's, it's the practice of reflection or meditation or prayer. It's a, it's a few minutes of day set aside to set your mind and your thoughts on God, on his word, on the person of Jesus and his intention for your life. This internal practice sets your mind in the right place. It fills your mind with, with God things. It helps clear the noise, and, and if we bring ourselves to it, it helps us to find ourselves in the story of God and embeds ourselves deeply in his story that shapes how we see our lives and the purpose of our days. And while doing this, we actually experience the presence of God, the Spirit of God presence, present in our thoughts, guiding us through the scriptures, shaping our outlook, deepening our trust in him and our love for others. The practices of solitude. Another practice might be to join with a group of people who spend time in the scriptures together to deepen their faith and to ask themselves, how does this work itself out in my life? Beginning in early September, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for that, both in person as well as some, uh, some opportunities online. Maybe it's a good time to make a commitment to something like that and to be watching. So these are just a few ways to address the inside, the faith side. But maybe you want to attend to the outer workings of your faith. Maybe you want to demonstrate more compassion or live out a deeper trust in God. So... I'd like to suggest two ways to get at that. The first isn't overly prescriptive. You're going to need to figure out what it means for you. But it's simple. Do something bold. Like Abraham or Rahab, take a big, costly risk that causes you to stretch beyond your comfort zone, that leads you to ask, do I have the faith to do this? Respond to God's leading and then leap Lean deeply into a need that you see around you. I have a friend who's come alongside a young man that she met while on a mission team in Haiti. And she's decided that she would sort of be a surrogate mom to him as he lost his own mom. And she's helping him, like life on life, giving uh, him opportunities uh, for education to move him from high school to college. I know another family who has three kids, a full house, and yet they said yes to fostering a fourth. I know a woman who learned about a need in Africa for women to have a certain surgical procedure that helps restore them to full function in society and has now given much of herself to make that procedure possible for hundreds of women there. I know a successful businessman who started a nonprofit to come alongside of students with potential but limited opportunity just up the road in Lowell, providing them with life skill and training, job mentoring, and connection to scholarships. So do something bold. 
and see what it does to your heart for others and your trust in God. And watch your faith expand. The second idea is to do something simple. I mean, what's more simple than providing a blanket to someone or giving them a meal? Honestly, here's a practice you can try. Set your alarm to go off every hour throughout your day. And when it does go off, ask yourself the simple question. What would Jesus ask of me in this moment? Take a few seconds and then do that thing. Whatever it might be, be more attentive to the person in front of you. Be more attuned to the needs of the people around you. Be more ready to say yes to help or suggest solutions. Be a reconciling presence in a contentious work environment. Love your kid more deeply. And as we change our behavior, we'll start to see our faith grow. And as our faith grows, we'll see it begin to impact our life. Friends, God invites us to be whole people. He wants us to live with integrity. He wants, us, he wants our outward life to evidence what's on the inside. He wants our lives to match our belief. And through James, he's calling us to bridge the gaps of inconsistency. He's inviting us to tend to these things with care, to think about them, to move on them. Whether we're working that out from the inside, outside in, or from the inside out. Because what is on the inside always works its way out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in moments of exposure, when the mirror is held up to us and we see ourselves for who we really are and not just who we want to be, when we see the disconnect between our faith and our actions, help us to take time to own it. Give us enough humility not to grow defensive and run, but to throw up our hands in surrender and acknowledgement. Give us the desire to recheck ourselves, to retool our approach, and to repent and move in a new direction. Help us to live lives of consistency and integrity. Help us to be like Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In his name, Jesus' name, and in the name of the Spirit who gives us strength, and in the name of the Father who gives us life, we pray these things. Amen.